beautiful, beautiful uh, words sung to a beautiful Savior. Um, we sang about him because we love him, having uh, been recipients of his love. I'm wondering if you're doubtful of it, however, as we're gathered together here tonight. It's possible for a true believer really to be lacking the experience of God's love. Who knows, maybe choices of a sinful kind have caused a separation between you and he. And it's a little hard for you to imagine that he still loves you, embraces you, and will not let you go. If that's you, would you pay attention uh, to the message tonight. This really ministered to me as I studied it, and I hope it ministers to you uh, who doubt the love of the unending uh, love and the unconditional love of Almighty God. This Jesus came to earth, and he took on enfleshment to become like you and I so as to suffer for you and I. We've been reading about uh, the events in the last week of his life, it's elongated in John's gospel. Uh, several chapters are about just a short period of time because the events therein are so important, so significant. And in fact, the event we'll read about tonight takes place just about 24 hours before this Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, he who has no beginning nor end, he who always existed, the events we'll read about tonight take place just about 24 hours before he will assume the cross for one such as you and I. And so let's, let's, let's see what he did. It's in John chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, in case you wondered if we'd ever get out of John 12, so did I. But here we are, all the way in John chapter 13. Look what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, so that's the immediate context. This big event is yet to occur in Jerusalem. People are preparing for it. Uh, folks from all over the world are there making pilgrimage during this time. So before this feast, Jesus, knowing... Listen, folks, it's one thing to go through crisis events. It's another thing to anticipate them, uh, seeing them coming in advance. He did. He saw all that would befall him in advance, yet he endured, knowing that his hour, the text said, had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, I feasted on that phrase. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love for his own persists. Though he is fully aware of the events, the crisis events which were imminent, they would befall him. He was aware of betrayal by his own and denial and rejection. He was aware of trials on trumped-up charges at the hands of his own people. He was aware of whipping, which would be his destiny. He was aware of mockery as people made fun of him. He was aware of the fact that he would be impaled on a cross and suffer perhaps the most excruciating uh, form of execution ever devised by humankind. In full awareness of all of this, still we read, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
uh, what does that mean to the end? It does not mean his love only continues until he met with his end. It doesn't mean that. No, his love for those who are his own persists to the uttermost. That's what it means. There is no end to the love of God for his own even to the end of time. It's full, it's not conditional, it's not here today, gone tomorrow. He loves his own to the ultimate extent of time and circumstance and everything else. Nothing changes that. It is a love for his own that has no limits. Now we know of God's love for the entirety of the world. Perhaps the most famous verse that most people know, John 3.16 tells us about it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know of the love of God behind which he provided for the sins of humankind, but his love for those who are his own is beyond that even. It's a special kind of love. There isn't an analogy to it, but I, I think for it, but I think the closest we can come to is that it's the kind of love a parent has for his or her child. There's nothing like it, you who are parents or grandparents. It's inexplicable. And your love for your child or grandchild is sort of irrational in the sense that it's unreasonable. It's not based on the lovability of the child or grandchild. It's inexplicable. It doesn't diminish. They can't shake you. You keep coming. You will not let them go. This is the kind of specific, particular, peculiar, and special love God has. No, not for the entirety of the world, but for those who are in his embrace by faith, for those who've been adopted into his family, for those whose essential identity is contained in these two vital words, his own. Everybody knows God as creator, but only a few do as father. Those are the ones who've come to him through Jesus the Son. I trust many, most, maybe all of you have done that. If that's the case, you qualify for that two-word designation, his own. I must tell you, whatever else may be true of you, this is the truest two words description. You must let it take hold of you. Whatever else possesses you, you are possessed by Almighty God. You became his own. He has an interest in your life. Redemption is not a theological term only. It's a reality. He bought us out of the world. We're not lost in the crowd anymore. And our worth is a function of the purchase price. It was the blood of his only begotten son. For sons and daughters, undeserving though we may be, like you and I, we are, we are his own. God's love for his own is like that for a parent, uh, of a parent for a child. Now, here's the thing. Jesus knows his own. This is a little uncomfortable. He knows what his own here are thinking right now. He knows what you did earlier today and what you'll do later tonight. He'll know what you watch on TV. He'll know what you secretively may ingest. He'll know what's on your computer. He knows about your impure motives and sinful inclinations. He knows of your potential uh, to turn from him. He knows about all of this. Now, here's the deal. And yet in full awareness 
of his own, yet he loves his own unconditionally and without end. And he loved his own to the end. There is no love like that, which is why it's so hard for us to be enveloped by it. We've not experienced it in any other way. It's without condition and it is without limitation whatsoever. Listen, shortly before the event, we'll get to it eventually, trust me, but I just got to camp out on this for a while. Shortly before the event, which we will read about tonight, um, well, you know about it, it's the Last Supper. Shortly before that event, I'll tell you what's happening with those who are his invited guests, the 12 intimate followers of the Lord, his disciples, will be at this Last Supper. And shortly before it, we're told in other uh, gospel accounts that they were having a discussion. Actually, it was an argument, and the argument was about who was the greatest amongst them. Shortly before what we're about to read here at the Last Supper, what the Lord did, they're arguing selfishly, pridefully, about who is the greatest. Now the Lord knew this. He uh, was aware of their conversation, and yet he loves even those who are his to the end. He knows that soon these disciples will forsake him and flee for cover. And yet he loves them, for they are his own. One of his disciples, Peter, will deny him. He knows this is coming, and yet he persists nonetheless in loving Peter because, because of this. Peter is his own. Those two words. I just love this. Whatever else is true of you in terms of your ethnicity or gender or age, pedigree or lack thereof, whatever else is true of you in terms of your developmental experiences, woundedness, abuse, abandonment, neglect, Whatever else is true of you, even as you sit here now, I'm telling you, this is the most true thing of you. This is your essential, essential identity. All the rest must not take hold of you. You are his own. If you've come to the Father through Jesus the Son, you are his own. And I just love this. His love for his own is without end or limitation. And it's the, listen, it's one thing for people to say, I really love you. And you say to yourself, yeah, because you don't know me. If you really knew me, you wouldn't be in love with me. I'm telling you, someone wrote a book one time, Why I'm Afraid to Tell You Who I Am, because if you really knew who I was, you would reject me, and I'm all I got. An author, I don't know if someone wrote that, but someone here should write that. But it's different with the Lord. In full knowledge of who we are, yet he declares very clearly, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to see the impact of those English words. He says, in full knowledge of you, by virtue of the fact that you are my own, I love you without end. God's love is not something, someone said this, he pays us with. It is who he is. God is love. You and I can do loving things from time to time, but frankly, they're not a reflection of our loving character. We have a selfish character. But this is different with God. 
He doesn't manifest love. He are love. God is love. Love isn't a reward for our good behavior. It's not salary for effort or labor well done. No, God loves us because love is who he is, especially towards his own. The disciples, though they gave up on him, he never gave up on them. Though the disciples at certain points stopped thinking of him, he never stopped thinking of them. Are you one of his own? I'm telling you, I hope so. If so, please don't resist the Lord's love for you. I'm finding this is the biggest challenge we Christians face, and that is to fully accept the unconditional, unending love of God. This really is a challenge when we're overwhelmed with an awareness of our unlovability. We hate being in our own skin at times. We don't like the image in a mirror, and yet God sees it all, warts and all, and yet persists in loving those who are his own, that's the prerequisite to the end. Please exercise the Christian discipline of allowing the Christ to bestow his unending love upon you. I love uh, this word anyway. It's coming to be my favorite word. It is uh, God's love is an anyway kind of love. Feel free to memorize that word on the screen. I'll tell you why. I'll put it in a sentence. Almighty God knows all about you, yet because you are his own, he loves you. Say it with me. You see? That changes everything. That changes everything. Anyway is the gospel. Anyway is grace. Anyway is the distinctive of a relationship with Christ Jesus. You can't find any way love in any religious experience. It's all contingent on religious behavior or practice or liturgy or performance. It's only at the foot of the cross when you can find any way kind of love. Oh God, don't you know what I mean? Yes, but I love you anyway. Why? Because you are my own. That's the gospel. That is good news. He will stick with us over time. He will stick with us in spite of us. He will stick with us, though it costs him a lot to do so. This is a unique kind of love, categorically different than any other. This is the Savior's love for his own. But there is Satan. We read about him now in verse 2. During supper... It's the Last Supper. The devil, there he is, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The devil is operating, but Jesus, knowing, as it says, that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he had authority over powers and principalities, 
over all the heavens and the earth, knowing that his hands controlled the universe, he took up a towel with those very hands and he began to wash the disciples' feet. The roads were either dusty when dry or muddy when wet. The footwear was sandals. That's it. Soles, a piece of leather held onto the foot by a few straps. Their feet were dirty. Because of this, just about every house in that part of the world in those days had a water pot outside the entrance of the house so that guests coming in could have their feet washed before they came in. Who would do it? A servant. That was the custom. Well, now you have these 12 whom the Lord recruited, prayed for, intimate 12 who had access to him like nobody else did. Their feet are dirty. They're making their way into the upper room for this last supper, Passover meal. Their feet are dirty, but there's no servant there. And Don't you think one would have emerged to be a servant for the others? And yet not one did. Luke's gospel tells us in 22, 24, they were too busy with this discussion I mentioned earlier. Luke says, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest, you see. <laughs> they had no time for stooping down so as to serve the others by washing their feet. And because if they did that, it would be a concession. I must not be the greatest because look at, I'm the lowest. And so they resisted doing that. Nobody did it but the Lord. And John was there, an eyewitness, and therefore he could tell us with such specificity what the Lord did step by step. He got up from dinner, and he removed certain outer clothing, and he girded himself with a towel, and he got a basin of water and used the towel with which he was girt to dry the feet which he had just cleaned, and the Lord is just spelling all this out, and the king of kings did what they did not. He got up from dinner. He laid aside his garments. He took up a towel and girded himself with it. He poured water into the basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet. He wiped them with the towel with which he was Girded. Jesus washed, count them, 24 feet, 12 sets of two. Yeah, but this is amazing. He, he washed the feet of everybody there. He washed the feet of Peter who would deny him. He washed the feet of Thomas who would doubt him. He even washed the feet of Judas who would betray him. Do you feel disqualified from the cleansing work of Jesus? Don't do it. You're about the same as Peter and Thomas and Judas and so am I. Don't separate yourself from the rest of us. You're as dirty as the rest of us and as eligible for the gracious cleansing work of the Lord Jesus. Don't resist his love. Don't resist his grace. It doesn't impress him. Well, he came to Simon Peter, verse 6 tells us, and he, Simon Peter, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And this really helps me as a Bible student 
to be satisfied with what the Lord is showing me now, and it's not everything. Like Peter, you and I will have to wait to understand the, uh, with full comprehension all that Jesus said and did and was about, and even allowed to happen in our lives. We'll have to wait for a time hereafter for that to come. And the Lord goes on, or or the text goes on to say in verse 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter's resistance at the first look looks like humility, but it's the opposite. It's pride, isn't it? It's as if Peter is saying, look at here, Lord. Others may need you to do this for them, but I do not. Pride, not humility, is separating him from the crowd. And the Lord responds, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That's what the text says. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter has to acknowledge that his feet were just as dirty as the others. Peter must acknowledge that he needed cleansing just like everybody else. Peter must accept the Lord's willingness to make him clean just like the others. You know, uh, it's occurred to me that some people do good things. Uh, And I think it's because they do it to cover up for their dirty feet. The good things persuade them they don't need a good savior and a good cleansing because their good deeds are fooling them into thinking They don't have dirty feet. But it's like putting clean socks on top of your dirty feet. You can hide it, but the reality is still there. They still stink and they're still dirty. And your good deeds are not an adequate cleansing agent. It's fascinating to me that many famous people, Hollywood types, I I indict them all the time. I don't mean to paint with such a broad stroke, but because they're so well-known and famous, their lives are before us. And it's fascinating to me that some living the most immoral, degraded, depraved lifestyles are on the bandwagon for every cause under the sun. Um, Good deeds, I think, (laughs) to try to cover up for the desperately sinful pattern Uh, of immorality and all the rest that so many are engaged in. I'm telling you, it's like clean socks on dirty feet. But unless we acknowledge our defilement and unless we allow the Lord to serve us by removing our defilement, we have no part with him. No good deeds could bring us into union with Christ Jesus. Only a good foot washing, cleansing, But because of human pride, I think we don't want to acknowledge our dirty feet. And because of human pride, we don't want to accept the fact that we can't get to heaven by washing our own feet, nor by washing anybody else's feet. We can only get to heaven by allowing Jesus to wash our dirty feet. Peter, I'll tell you what he was doing. Peter was resisting God's grace. Now, we can understand this because grace is such an unusual commodity. There's nothing like it. Grace, grace. Grace is not connected to anything we do or don't do, but that's what makes the world go around, you see. But grace doesn't play by those rules. That's why it's so hard, and that's why we resist. I mean, the Lord Jesus is graciously stooping down to wash the dirty feet of sinful, undeserving people, and 
what he is doing is solely based on love and grace, and Peter can't handle it. Nobody has experienced anything like that, and therefore he resists it. He resists divine grace. So too you and I. It's a problem. But make no mistake about it, grace. Grace. Well, the kind of grace which is God's grace is grace that is greater than all our sin. That's where faith comes in. It may not be in our experience. There's no parallel to it in anything we've experienced. No relationship in life is this. But, but, but God's grace surpasses all our, all our, nobody else's does, but God's grace is greater. You want to sing it? Sing, let's sing. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. How does it go? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's very true. Look, folks, there's more to this foot washing ceremony than meets the eye. It was of cleansing of, with soap and water of feet. It was a physical thing, but it was a metaphor for a more ultimate cleansing. I'm sure you understand that. In this uh, event, this foot washing, it is the Lord Jesus who was essentially saying to all of us, we must not resist having our sins. It's not about our feet having our sins washed away, not by water, by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And unless we allow this to happen by faith, he says, you have no part with me. The disciples were unworthy to have the Lord wash their feet, and we are unworthy to have the Lord wash away our sins, and yet he has. And it is all of divine grace, and we dare not resist it. Don't resist his grace. It's a desperate inclination we Christians have, resisting God's grace. Don't do it. If we do not accept the humble service of Jesus in cleansing us, we have no part in him. So verse 9, Simon Peter, look what he did. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. He had Jesus, Judas in mind there. What's he saying? Well, listen, we got to get this. This is a very important teaching of the Lord here. I hope we can, I hope we can get this. I think he is saying. There is an initial cleansing that is different, separate from ongoing washings, which we believers must have. In other words, we must initially, once and for all, be washed by the blood of Jesus for our sins. This is done as an event. It's once for all. It's not a repeated thing. After this, however, we can pick up some of the world's dirt and grime all over again. And for this, we do not need a repeat of the initial cleansing which we have received by our faith in the Lord's sacrifice for our sin. What we need is the cleansing of repentance and confession from the sin we have just committed. We are declared clean once and for all. Can you see it in verse 10? And you 
are clean. We have been declared clean by the blood of the Lamb once and for all. We do not need to be cleansed. What I mean is, we do not need to be saved again and again. The Bible calls for us to be born again, not for us to be born again and again and again and again. Those are folks who have not been fully gospelized, fully graced. They're resisting the grace of God. It does not compute because they think their sin has surpassed God's grace, but it's different as the song we just sang made clear. God's grace is that which is greater than all our sin, not the other way around. Someone wrote this. The same blood that covered you yesterday is covering you today. The blood of Jesus never loses its power. Yeah. But a cleansed, fully saved believer can still sin. At that time, we need the cleansing that comes through confession and repentance, not in order to establish union with the Lord. That's established at the point of faith. But to reestablish vital communion with the Lord. So Jesus said to him, he who has bathed. In other words, he who has once and for all been washed in the blood of the Lord, he who has been completely cleansed, he said, needs only to wash his feet. How? Through confession and repentance when he sins, but is completely clean. And you are clean. That's what it says. Jesus forever atoned for our sin at Calvary. Uh, I don't need him to suffer and die for me again and again and again. His atoning sacrifice, his cleansing blood is adequate to cancel out the debt of my sin. He said it is finished. Now why am I resisting that? So when I sin... I don't need to be washed in the blood again. I need cleansing of a different kind. It's the cleansing of repentance and confession. Allow me just this for a second. Um, we've spoken about this, and I think you know this, but it bears repeating. What is repentance? It's simple. It's a change of direction. Sin leads me away from Christ. Can, uh, repentance means I change direction, and now I move in a Christward direction. That's what it is. Yeah, don't make it complicated. Repentance. Repentance is, I'll never do this again. I'll stop doing this. It isn't about the specific sin, actually. It's a change of direction. Sin leads us away from the sinless one. Repentance says, no, I'm coming back to you. That's repentance. Now, what's confession? It's easy. Confession means I agree with you, Lord, about everything pertaining to my sin. First, I agree it's sin. I'm not blaming it on my mother. My mother didn't breastfeed me. That's why I did this. My father didn't play Little League Baseball with me. That's why. No, we're not playing those games, looking for someone in the past to blame this on. When you agree with God about your sin, you say, oh, God, I sinned because I chose to sin. The devil did not make me do it. The devil tempted me to, and I cooperated. I sinned. That's confession. But, but there's something else to agree with God about sin, and that is it's washed in the blood of the Lamb. 
Once you fully confess it, you don't pare it down. You don't say, oh God, here I go. I made a mistake again. You didn't make a mistake. You rebelled against God. You chose to do that which you know to be an offense to his holy character. You rebelled. You sinned by sheer force of will. Don't pare it down. There's no euphemism for sin. You didn't make a mistake. You chose to please be in agreement with. Otherwise, you're not confessing the right thing. You don't confess mistakes. Mistakes don't keep you out of heaven. Sin does. That's what you confess. But now after having been overwhelmed by your sinful proclivity, you can be so overwhelmed by it, you're not agreeing with God that it's forgiven, that it's cast behind his back, that it is cleansed by the blood of the lamb. That's a once and for all thing. He said it right there. You are clean. Yes, so that's repentance and confession. And once I agree with God about my sin, its serious nature and the totality of his cleansing of it, then I press on in renewed fellowship and communion with him just as if I had not sinned. That's how it is. Peter was requiring more of the Lord than is necessary. Peter was saying, your cleansing of my feet is inadequate. Peter would add to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Didn't he suffer enough? I'm not adding to it except by agreeing. He paid for my sin. I don't get points with God for walking around with a bunch of of guilt and shame and trying to crucify myself to try to impress God. It doesn't impress him. It degrades the totality of his atoning sacrifice. It suggests to him, thanks for what you did, Jesus, but it's not adequate. I have to add to it. That's what Peter was saying. Not just my feet. I need more. And he says, the Lord says, no, no, no. When once you have been cleansed, you are clean. And when you, when you are infected by the dirt and grime of the dusty, muddy roads of life again, as a clean one, repent, confess it, and press on with me. Our union with Christ cannot be more secure, better than ever before, because it's entirely contingent on our faith in him as Savior. But our communion with Christ wavers, doesn't it? Communion. And when we confess and repent, I'm not saved again. I've renewed my communion. You will perhaps hold this against me, but I, I will share it anyway. A lady came to me the other day to be baptized again. I talked her out of it. Isn't that a crazy thing for a minister to do? Why would you talk someone out of being baptized again? Because essentially she was thinking the cleansing she received from Jesus was inadequate and she had to start all over. Baptism would be the uh, offering 
she gives to God to appease him, to win his favor, to, to get him to love her. That's not why you're baptized. That's a misuse of baptism. I mean, it's a good thing for a church because we can count you and our numbers will go up. But that's, that, that, that's a distortion of the ordinance of baptism. No. No, no, no. There is no offering to, to get God to love us. There's no nothing, no additive to what he's done on the cross. If there's a time of, of uh, uh, marred and diminished communion with the Lord, as I think was the case in this lady's life, well, then we then we confess it and we repent and we thank God uh, that he has saved me and washed me in his blood and that I've been baptized in his spirit. The minute I accepted Christ, his spirit came to po- po- possess me and, 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 and I thank him for his love, for his own, to the end. But, uh, but I don't try to buy his favor. That's what Peter said. No, 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 that's to resist, that's to resist God's grace. Folks, our union with Christ is settled, though our communion from time to time may waver. We have our new identity with Christ, it's irreversible, yet our fellowship with Christ can, can be diminished in quality from time to time. I don't need to be regenerated again, saved again. I surely don't need Jesus to suffer and die for me again. I need to confess what's going on. I need to turn from it. And I need to stop begging God to do for me what he's so willing to do. Please forgive me. (laughs) Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was 2,000 years ago. That was anticipation of every one of our sins, which was yet future from the cross. I don't beg God to do what he's already done. I thank him for it. After you sin, you repent of it, you confess it, then you say, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me. That's what you say. You don't beg your father for something he stands ready to give. You don't do that. Peter was trying to talk God out of what he determined to do. Don't do this. Don't resist the Lord's grace. When a believer sins, I'm one, so I know this, guilt drives him to try to add to what the Lord has already provided for our sin. That's what guilt does. Don't do this. What Jesus did is enough. He suffered enough. He cleansed us from our sin. He canceled out the debt we owe. When you sin, don't ask for more than you need. Confess your sin. And then accept the Lord's cleansing forgiveness. You, if you're one of his own, by faith. You are in irreversible union with Christ. Confess your sin and restore your communion with Christ, realizing you are clean, realizing you are forgiven. You know what happens when you realize you're clean and forgiven and loved? In the overflow, you bear fruit. (laughs) It just happens. It's like a well-watered tree. 
when you're in the atmosphere of God's grace and you realize you're clean in his eyes and you're loved and you're forgiven because you are his own, there's like a bounce in your step and you bear fruit. <laughs> Something about you, you radiate union with Christ. <clears throat> you live better. <clears throat> when you don't, then you're back in the flesh <laughs> trying to sew together as our forebears did an apron of leaves to cover up for our nakedness. Instead of saying, oh, Lord Jesus, you already washed my dirty feet. I pick up the grime and dirt of the world from time to time, and I need continual cleansing through repentance and confession. But your blood was enough to wash me clean forevermore. I beg you, if you are a Christian, do not resist the inexpressible, unending, incomprehensible love and grace of our Father. Don't do it. If you're not a Christian, not one thing I said applies to you. <laughs> not a thing. Because you're not yet in that category, that two-word category, his own. We invite you to be. No. Jesus invites you to be. <clears throat> There's room in his family. He yearns to adopt you into his family. You know, I was studying uh, just recently the Roman customs of the day regarding adoption. If, uh, if a dad was going to adopt someone to be a part of his family, the requirement is that the dad would satisfy all financial and other obligations, cancel out all debts that the uh, adoptee owed. <laughs> and uh, everything pertaining to the child to be adopted, the old life, was canceled out. According to Roman law in the day, the adopted child now began a new life. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's just what the father has done for us. He canceled out all of our debts. All the stuff of the past that we don't even want to think about is not part of us anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's new. The old has passed away. New has come. Do you mind standing to your feet? We're going to take leave for one another, but first, in prayer, I want to invite those of you who feel dirty. I want to invite you to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Just for another minute or two of your time. Lord Jesus, to say thank you is an understatement. But we thank you. Thank you, O oh God, for your shed blood by which our sins are wiped away. There's power in the blood to cause our hearts to respond to you like never before. Oh, God in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters who, like me, fight this. Can't wrap our arms around it. 
Therefore, resist it. Oh, God, keep us from doing it. You love us, your own, until the end, no matter what. You know everything about us. You have us just as we are. In fact, you delight in us. In fact, you don't mind being in association with us, in union with us. Oh, God in heaven, we could bear more fruit in the atmosphere of your grace, not our flesh. Therefore, help us to appreciate the totality of your cleansing of our sin. And when we sin, let's reckon back on the cross, which obtained forgiveness for us. Let's confess, let's repent, and let's press on just as if we had not sinned. Now for those, oh God, who are feeling on the outs and not close to you, having no union or communion, feeling overwhelmed by guilt and shame, fully aware of transgression, sin we call it, and yet not quite fully aware of your grace which surpasses it, I pray for them tonight in the power of your spirit. They would by faith, by faith say, Lord Jesus, what you have done for those undeserving men at that last supper, what you have done for so many here tonight, please do for me. By your grace, by your mercy, I accept your shed blood on the cross as the cleansing agent for my sin. Make me clean by your blood, the blood of the Lamb, O God. And put your spirit in me to such extent that I desire to live a different lifestyle. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Change me from the inside out. Make me to be so overwhelmed and overcome by your grace that I show it, I reflect it to those around me. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.